Welcome to Business Done Differently, the podcast about challenging the status quo, creating fans first, and changing the game in business. I'm your host, Jesse Cole, and it's showtime. Today, I am pumped to welcome Jeff Barnes, aka Dr. Disneyland, author of Wisdom of Walt and Beyond the Wisdom of Walt, and the only professor with the accredited college course on the history of Disneyland in the world, Jeff Welcome to the show, my friend. Good morning. I am absolutely thrilled to be with you, Jesse. And again, thrilled to be on the podcast with you. And hello to all your listeners. <laughs> well, I'm excited. As I shared it and wrote you a letter, when I read The Wisdom of Walt, and I'm, as all the listeners know, I'm a big, big Walt Disney junkie. I don't know if I took more notes than any book on that, on every single lesson that you had. I was like, this is unbelievable. And then I just picked up Beyond and it kept going. And, you know, I think it's because of a little bit of your background, you've been teaching it. And I think that is so interesting. You know, you have speakers, you have people, but you have to be able to actually teach it. Tell me back, let's do a little storytelling, Walt Disney way. You developing the course on Disneyland. Tell me a little bit about how that started and actually what a syllabus looks like, because it's fascinating to me. Well, you know, for me, it really, you know, I first went to Walt Disney World when I was 10 years old and, you know, just absolutely fell in love with it. But didn't get out to California and Disneyland until I was in grad school in 1988. And I hated it. Stumbled into the park at like 11 a.m. on a Sunday morning. The big new attraction was Star Tours in Tomorrowland. And, you know, I found the attraction, but I was in the wrong place for the line because the line actually started way back at the beginning of Main Street and waited three hours for my very first Disneyland ride. (laughs) And by the time we finished that experience, you know, it was two o'clock in the afternoon. The park was too crowded. The park was too hot. And by the end of the day, Jesse, I was done. (laughs) I mean, done. And if you had told me that I would end up doing what I'm doing now, some 30 years later, I would have told you you were absolutely crazy. But you got the bug. Yeah. But, you know, I ended up staying in California long enough to realize people in this state are crazy about that place. Mm -hmm. And I got curious. And I think that's one of the lessons, you know, if we're going to be successful in anything that we do, we got to get super, super curious. That was one of Walt's C's to success. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, what did I miss? Why does everyone love it? And I, you know, hated it. And I came to discover You know, Walt wasn't born successful. In fact, he had more failures than successes. And I had an opportunity to return three years later. And so I started doing research because, you know, at my heart, I'm a historian. And as a result of that research, went back and saw the park through a completely different lens, a completely different perspective. And everything just opened up. And, you know, that's where I you know, sort of discovered, you know, the Disney parks, they're not just an escape, they're an example. Mm -hmm. And Disney, even though they promote it as the place where dreams come true, I see it as the place that can show you, that can show you how to make your own dreams come true. And that really is sort of the foundation for the class that I teach. And it really is the message in both the Wisdom of Walt and beyond the Wisdom of Walt. I love it. I love it. So you fell in love with Disney. You visited numerous times. You really got to know it. And then you said you're going to set up a, a, a course. I'm interested because in the books, you share a lot of lessons, but I'm actually interested really in like, again, what does it look like for the students? Where do you start? 
Because it's you're it, reading a book and then there's a whole semester of learnings. Right. Tell me a little bit yeah. of that that's maybe not in the book or shared. So um, I, I think, first of all, um, it, it's the idea that Walt Disney isn't just this mythical or mystical figure, but he was a real person with a story, with a life, with a biography, you know, born in Chicago, spent his early formative years in Marceline, Missouri, ends up as an ambulance driver um, in the end of World War I, uh, has the bankruptcy in Kansas City, which I think was really the you know, pivotal turning point. And as I talk about in my you know, keynote, you know, that first studio, Laughagram Studio, which goes bankrupt in 1923, you know, he has that decision to make. You know, he could give up. He could play it safe. He could stay where he is surrounded by, you know, friends and family or Jesse, he could go all in and he decides to go all in by boarding a train, coming to California and becoming ultimately a hero in Hollywood. And when he goes all in, he does it with $40, a single suitcase and a one way ticket, joins forces with his older brother, Roy, who was already here in Los Angeles. And then together, they formed the Disney Brothers studio that today is the largest entertainment company anywhere in the world. And I'm sort of haunted by the question, you know, what if Laughagram Studio had been a success? What if Walt Disney never goes bankrupt? Maybe he spends the rest of his life only in Kansas City. And I know for a lot of us, you know, we always want to be successful. We never want to fail. But it was that failure that compels him to California, and it was that failure that changed his life and ultimately changed the world. I love it. And, you know, I think, you know, what was so powerful in your book, you talk about the sitting on the park bench, the vision. You know, obviously, you had a big failure, and you had to keep pushing along the lesson there. But the vision... Share a little. I mean, I'm guessing that's also a big starting point. If you want to really do things differently, make a big impact, you got to start with some kind of a unique vision. Yeah. And so for me in the class, I want the students to know that Walt Disney was a real person. Yes, he had his successes, but he also had his failures to include the bankruptcy. And then, of course, losing Oswald, the not so lucky rabbit, as I like to refer to him. And then, you know, coming up with Mickey Mouse. But, you know, then Mickey Mouse wasn't enough. He wanted to go all in on full-length animated feature films. And Snow White was, you know, this huge, huge risk. And then, of course, World War II comes along and, you know, he's basically making no money. The Army takes over the studio and he is producing, um, you know, films for the military at, um, you know, just cost, virtually no revenue. And then, um, you know, post-World War II, you know, he wants to get into the amusement park business. And that all comes as a result of taking his daughter's uh, Diane and Sharon to Griffith Park, and they're riding this merry-go-round over and over and over again, and Walt's sitting on this park bench, and he starts to dream of a place where the parents and the children can have fun together. And for me, and I talk about this in the very first chapter of The Wisdom of Walt, um, they, they have that bench in the opera house on Main Street at Disneyland. And I know whenever we go to the parks, we all have our favorite ride. We all have our favorite show. We all have our favorite attraction. Well, for me, that park bench is my favorite anything in Disney Park because it represents the power of our ideas. It represents the power of our dreams. For me, it represents the power of, quote unquote, crazy thinking. 
Because when Walt dreamed of an amusement park, everybody thought he was crazy to include his own wife and his own brother, Roy. In fact, Roy said, Walt, we are not building an amusement park. They all thought it was going to be bankrupt, shuttered, and forgotten in six months or less. But Walt believed in himself, he believed in his idea, and he kept pushing and pushing and pushing. And what I want our students to know in the history of Disneyland class is they've got to believe in themselves. They've got to believe in their ideas. They've got to believe in their dreams. They've got to believe in their crazy thoughts because that's how we change the world. That's how our businesses get off the ground. And, you know, I shudder to think what would Anaheim look like today? What would Orlando look like today? What would the world look like today if Walt had not gotten up off of that park bench and believed in himself and began working on his dream for a place called Disneyland. You know, I love that so much. I love Walt. A quote that people don't share much about him, but you shared it is, money doesn't excite me, my ideas excite me. And I yeah. think about that, you know, people that are driven by money, they're not going to have the imagination, the dream, the ability to go all in, but people have to have ideas they get excited about. And I'll tell you, Jeff, you inspired me in the book that I've just started writing with the fans. It's going to be a lot of fun, but that vision starting point I started on a dugout bench and literally sitting on that dugout bench with the best seats in the house. And I was bored out of my mind. And I would mm-hmm. realize, I bet you, Walt, going back there, he was sitting there was like, well, what do I get to do? I'm just watching them play. Where can yeah. I be part of this? And he had that same you know, itch to do something more because it was a frustration point. It was a friction point of where this imagination comes from. And the key is acting on it. So I know we can go into a lot of <laughs> motivation here, but I actually, I've never been to Disneyland. I've been to Disney World probably 30 times, but I've never been to Disneyland. And obviously in the wisdom of Walt, you go pretty much the whole story of Disneyland. I'd like to take us through a little bit of arc and through some of the lessons of actually pulling up from Walt's vision, pulling up to the parking lot. You talk about the Main Street impressions, you know, going in tunnel vision. I'd like you just kind of share a, a person that's never been there, how we can learn from that experience of walking in the park. Sure. So, um, you know, you have to realize, first of all, and I know, you know, the, the, the big market is on the East Coast. And so, you know, Walt's dream for Walt Disney World, um, you know, just understand it's 150 times the size of Disneyland, you know, 27,440 acres versus the original 180 here in California. You know, Walt just kept dreaming bigger and bigger and bigger. But in California, you know, Disneyland hugs you. Walt Disney World might swallow you, Disneyland hugs you. And so there is sort of a charming uh, storyboard effect here in California that the locals just love. And so you have to remember, you know, Anaheim is 33 miles south of Los Angeles. And the park originally sat in an orange grove in Orange County, California. And so as you pull in, you, you, you have to appreciate the fact that what Walt wanted was to create not just an amusement park, but a story park, a theme park. And what you're going to have the opportunity to do is to step into a story, a story that is going to challenge you when you leave at the end of the, at the end of the day to go out and then live your own great story. And so as you go through those tunnels, The idea is that as you pull into the parking lot, at least originally, the parking lot now is a second park, Disney California Adventure. But originally, the idea was 
you are by way of the parking lot attendant being um, drawn or um, aided into literally the seat of your theater, the, the, the seat in the theater. Mm. And so again, Walt is thinking like a producer in Hollywood. He was a showman. Um, he was Hollywood's greatest storyteller. And so the elevated train station, which you could see from the parking lot, was the, the marquee, mm. which was saying, hey, we're telling a great story today. We've got a great show. Come this way. And um, the red bread. Was that a weenie? Was that a, what he would call a weenie from the parking lot? Absolutely. And I know in 2021, the word weenie is a little bit of an odd word. But, um, you know, Walt was a Midwestern guy. Very simple taste. And so his favorite food um, was the weenie, i.e. a hot dog, and chili. And uh, every night when he got home from the studio, uh, he would pull into the driveway, sneak in through the side door, and pull out a couple of hot dogs or weenies. One was for himself and one was for his favorite poodle. And um, he would use that weenie or that hot dog to um, get the dog or the poodle to go wherever he wanted the dog to go. And so he uses what he referred to when he was designing the park, architectural weenies to get us, the guests, to come and to go wherever he wanted us to go. So if we just sit in the parking lot, that doesn't really accomplish much, does it? No, he needs us to come into the park. And, um, you know, there are red brick um, in, in, the, in, in front of the train station. The idea, again, you're in the lobby of the theater. As you go through the tunnels, the idea of the tunnels is stage left, stage right. And when you step on the Main Street USA, you're stepping into a recreation of what was Walt's childhood town of Marceline, Missouri. And go back to 1955. In 1955, the idea here is, from an amusement park perspective, a carnival perspective, a county fair perspective, there would be multiple entrances in and multiple exits out. Well, Walt wanted a single entrance in and a single exit out because as a movie producer, he understood the importance of that first impression and that last impression. He wanted to control the opening scene and the closing shot. Now, every amusement park operator told him, Walt, you can't do it this way. And every time an amusement park operator told him not to do it this way, he knew he was doing it exactly the way he wanted to do it. Because again, he wasn't building an amusement park, he was building a story or a theme park. And, you know, Main Street USA, other than the railroad, didn't have any real ride shows or attractions, right? And so he had to have something that drew you deeper into the park. And so once you're inside the park, the first real architectural weenie is Sleeping Beauty Castle. That's what draws you deeper. And it's so amazing, Jesse, because you're standing on Main Street USA, which is a turn-of-the-century town, and yet at the end of the street is a medieval castle. We don't even think twice about it, right? We, we just keep following. We just keep going. It's, it's beckoning, and there's zero cognitive dissonance. We, we just keep going where Walt says to go, right? And that's the vision. 
And it's, and that's just the opening. And then obviously it goes on through before, but I, I think what's so powerful, it puts you in a state of mind. You know, I remember as a kid in Disney world, you know, you would start seeing the big things, you know, the big arches coming in, you would see, and all of a sudden you're in state of mind. And then you get in main street and you're going like the way things were, and you feel at peace and you feel yeah. calm and to feel calm in an amusement park, good luck, you know, good luck. But I'll tell you, Jeff, this is what, and again, how does this relate to any, any company? You know, I think very easily, how do you look at the entrances, the first impressions, what are the things that people see and how do you control it? I'm so yeah. fascinated learning from you and others about Walt is like, he tried to control every aspect that he could. Yeah. And it sounds like a control freak. No, he's trying to make the best possible experience. And I'll tell you this, Jeff, at our games, fans always, you know, we're fortunate now we sold out every game and fans try to leave every way. We have all the gates closed except the main gate because it's a 1926 ballpark. They had numerous gates back in the day. They're all oh, sure. But we want them to come out. And the first thing they see is our pep band playing music at the end of the game. We have our players greeting the fans. Everyone's dancing. We have a free s'more station when you're leaving. It's all part of that last impression experience. And if you watch, everyone's laughing, cheering, dancing, taking videos. That is controlled. If they just walked out the gate, the night was forgettable. Parts of it was forgettable. And I think, what's your last impression? And like that's so, so important. So there's so yeah. many things to go off. Do you want to keep going a little bit more on the details? I mean, where... I'm very fascinated by the details and the storytelling that I think everyone can learn from. Yeah. So a couple of quick points. First of all, you know, as you're going down Main Street, you're going to get to the Central Hub. And originally there were four lands off of the Central Hub, Adventureland, Frontierland, Fantasyland, and Tomorrowland. And if you turn right into Tomorrowland, think about this. It's literally like Walt had one foot in the past and one foot into the future, right? And so he was a historian, but he was a futurist all at the same time. And in terms of like how good you feel when you're in a Disney park, the Imagineers are very intentional about creating what they refer to as the architecture of reassurance. They make sure that they control the environment so that you feel good about everything. I think as a business owner, you know, when is the last time you thought about that first impression? When is the last time that you thought about that last impression? Because we know that space and we walk into it every single day from a very routine sort of mindset, not from the guest perspective, not from the customer perspective, but just from sort of a, you know, eight to five, nine to five, this is where I work perspective. And we're not thinking of it from the reassurance perspective. I, I got a question on that, on the reassurance. You know, now we're known at every land has different music. It transitions perfect as you're walking into it. Yep. You know, just, even, just like a movie scene. Exactly like a movie scene. The editing, the cross dissolve, everything when you're thinking like a movie. Yep. And I just read the other day in the masters, they actually pipe in sounds of birds throughout the entire course. I never knew that. They play bird noises to make you feel like it's more natural. Yeah. How did it start for Walt? Because so many people are like, all right, Disney, it's so far. You know, we're only five years into the bananas. How did it start with that type of obsession over details? Because there's no way they had different music pumping in or when the parade comes through, the, the music synced up perfect when you can hear it. I mean, it's unbelievable now. Do you know, in your research, how did it start Disneyland or the years that Walt was around as far as sounds, details, all that? Honestly, I, I think it goes back to when he was working in Kansas City and he was developing a film called The Alice Comedies. And he was doing something that was rather revolutionary in animation where he was taking a real girl and putting her into the cartoon. And when he got to California, he still had a portion of that film and there was interest in it. 
And he was given money to try and finish that. And fast forward to 1955, and he's going to take you, he's going to take me, he's going to take the guest mm. and put us into the show. He's going to put us into the animation. He's going to put us into the cartoon, except it's going to be real. It's going to be a place called Disneyland. I mean, I don't know if you've ever thought about Disneyland as a cartoon set, but that's really what's happening. So us humans are just part of the actual show. We're put into it. And exactly. so we're a part of the story. And, and it goes back to his attempt to do this with a little girl by way of the Alice comedies way back at Laugh-A-Gram Studio in the early 1920s. It's fascinating. Yeah, it's so good. It's so good. We dive a little bit. You do talk about designing, the detailing the designs and all that. And, and I remember you talking about the trash cans. Can we give some more examples? Because, you know, I'm starting to lean into this. I mean, we have yellow bases with the bananas. We're getting yellow chalk lines. I just ordered 100 dozen yellow baseballs, banana balls. Uh, we're going to make banana foul poles. Like, we are going to go all in on this. We've done half of it. <laughs> We have a long way to go, but it, it, it matters. And I think Dennis Snow, another Disney speaker I've got to know, he says, everything speaks. And yeah. can you share some of the things that you've learned about the details and maybe some lessons on it? Yeah, so when Walt came home on one of the Saturday afternoons, Daddy's Day, where he had taken the girls, Diane and Sharon, out, and um, he gets back from Griffith Park and he says to his wife, Lily, honey, we're, um, we're going to build an amusement park. <laughs> Lily looked at Walt and said, oh, Walt, no, why why those places are filthy. Mm. And Walt looks at her and says, that's the point. Mine, mine will be clean. Mm. Know that one of your big mantras is if you're doing things normal, um, you're doing it wrong. You know, you, you've got to be different, right? Well, in the 1950s, we had amusement parks. We didn't have theme parks. And everybody knew that amusement parks were shady, amusement parks were dirty. Um, that's not where you wanted to take your family. Well, one of the ways that Disneyland stood out was by being impeccably clean. And the trash cans were themed. The trash cans told a story. And Walt figured out that you needed a trash can every 30 feet. And the way he figured this out was, again, his favorite food was a hot dog or the weenie. And one day he just grabbed a hot dog and he walked with it and he figured out how long it took him to eat a hot dog. And the answer was 30 feet. He was ready to throw away the wrapper after 30 feet. And so he just told his crew, we, we need trash cans every 30 feet because that's how long it took me to get rid of this hot dog. It's so fascinating. And, you know, that's what's so incredible about Disneyland versus all of the other parks. Yes. Walt died of lung cancer in December 1966 before they broke ground in Florida in May of 67. And so Disneyland remains the only park that Walt ever actually walked in. Mm -hmm. And so when you come to California, for me, it's sacred ground mm -hmm. because Walt walked every inch of that park. He knew every blade of grass. He knew every brick in Disneyland. And so, again, it's sacred ground. It literally was his magic kingdom. And, you know, the trash cans are there because Walt said, put the trash can there. The trees are there because Walt said, put the tree. He wanted just so. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it was his toy. It was his baby. Um, the vision in Florida was Walt's vision but unfortunately, uh, he didn't live to you know, see it to fruition. Um, and, you know, going back to, you know, first impressions and Main Street, when you get to the central hub, 
you know, originally there were four lands off, Adventureland, Frontierland, Fantasyland, and Tomorrowland. Well, the reason why there were four lands is because the emerging technology in the 1950s was television. Every other studio in Hollywood was terrified of that technology. Walt embraced it. Walt recognized the power of that technology and knew that he could sell himself, sell the studio, sell Disneyland by way of that new technology. And as a result, he forms the partnership with ABC. ABC buys into Disneyland. He creates three new programs and puts them on ABC to include the Disneyland program, which becomes a giant infomercial for the park. And the reason why you have four lands is because on average, there were four channels on a television set in downtown Los Angeles in 1955. And so Walt's thinking is, well, you can pick a land once you get down to the central hub. He's not going to micromanage you anymore. He's giving you that first impression. Now you get to choose just like you're going to pick a channel. You get to choose your channel. You get to choose your story by way of Adventureland, Frontierland, Fantasyland, or Tomorrowland. And my point whenever I do a virtual workshop is I tell the leaders, I tell the managers, look, you want to train well. You want to make sure your team is prepared to make that great first impression, but don't micromanage. Yeah. Let people make their own choices. Let people make their own decisions, just like Walt lets go of the guests once they get to the central hub. I love it. You just referenced the training, which was really interesting reading about uh, Walt and the fact that, A, this show is business done differently. And it sounds like he first thought, he's like, all right, we're not going to be like every other theme park. All right. They're dirty. Or any other theme park. There were no theme parks in any other amusement park, you know. Correct. And, and one of the big things, and, and I read this when he hired, an, uh, what was his name to do the training? Um, uh, Vaughn. Vaughn. Uh, Vaughn Arsdale, France. Yes. He hired him to the training and he said he only had one policy. It was like, he just told him he hated the dirt and the sloppy surface. That was all that Walt said. So was that the big differentiator? And then what else from the training can we learn the original training? Because that's where it all started. Yeah. So in reading your book, it was fascinating because you hire based on culture, not based on their baseball knowledge. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yes. And in fact, um, I almost get the sense that you look for people who don't really know a lot about baseball. 1000%. <laughs> exactly. Um, Walt didn't hire people who were in the amusement park business. Yes. Because he wasn't building an amusement park. Mm. He was doing something completely new. He was doing something completely different. Um, just like you're not necessarily building a baseball team. You're in the baseball business, but you recognize, no, I'm really in the entertainment business. Um, Walt was doing the exact same thing. He knew if he went out and hired amusement park people, he was going to get another amusement park. He was doing something completely new, something completely different. And so what he really tasked Van Arsdale France to do was to hire based on culture. And if he was going to build, quote unquote, the happiest place on earth, what he really tasked Van Arsdale France to do was to guess what? Hire happy people. <laughs> Imagine that. And if you hire based on culture, you can train them to do the rest. It's hard to train people to be happy. <laughs> well, you said what's my favorite quote. I want to find it. It's about happiness and you put it on the perspective. I wrote it down. It's my favorite quote, exactly what you're saying on happiness. It was about the forced perspective. Happiness is a state of mind. 
It's just according to the way you look at things. Yep. That's one of my favorite Walt quotes as well. It's so good because that's what you hire towards. And you look at it and you can know it right away. And well, I'm on the quote business. I'm gonna throw this one. Jeff, this is one of my favorite ones. This is from you. When you love what you're doing and you're having fun doing it, then you are living out your form of fantasy land. Your fantasy becomes your true north. I love that. Can we go like fantasy land? Everyone's like, oh, you're living in fantasy land. Well, that sounds like an amazing place to be. I want to talk about that because this imagination and fantasy, I think it needs to be talked about more in business and just share kind of how the lessons and things that you've been able to feed into people about this. Yeah. So when you talk about it being true North in the opening episode of the Disneyland television show, which premiered October 27, 1954, many months before Disneyland actually opened, July 17, 1955, Walt is able to start, again, that long-running infomercial by previewing what the park was going to be all about. And he talked about those lands radiating out from the central hub like the four points on the compass. And Fantasyland is on the north point And I believe it represents the true north of the park because it is literally the heart of Disneyland. It represents Walt's vision, i.e. a place where parents and children can have fun together. And as you go through Sleeping Beauty Castle, which again is sort of the weenie at the end of Main Street, it is the weenie for Fantasyland. And you can see King Arthur Carousel spinning through the gates of Sleeping Beauty Castle. And if you go back to the original vision, it starts with a park bench where Diane and Sharon are what? Spinning on a merry-go-round. You know, it is all sort of coming together there in Fantasyland. And Fantasyland opened with the most number of attractions and to this day is still home to the most number of attractions. And so again, you know, if you want to know what Disneyland is about, if you want to know what Walt was about, if you want to know what the happiest place on earth is about, you got to understand Fantasyland. In fact, when they open the park, Walt refers to Fantasyland as the happiest kingdom of them all. And, um, you know, I kind of go back to one of my favorite stories. You know, Walt um, was constantly giving, you know, VIPs and celebrities and political figures tours of the park. And um, he was he was giving Billy Graham a tour one afternoon and Billy Graham gave Walt what he thought was a compliment, i.e., you know, you've built um, you've built quite a fantasy here, Walt. And this really upset Walt. And and, in fact, um, you know, he kind of pushed back at Billy Graham and said, "Um, no, Billy, this this is reality. Everything out there, that's the fantasy. This, this is reality. Mm. And um, I I thought it was amazing that, um, you know, he just sort of turned everything upside down or inside out on on Billy Graham to just say, no, this is the way the world should be. And everything outside the Magic Kingdom, everything outside the berm, that's the fantasy. The world just hasn't realized it yet. It's such an optimistic, and I think that's why he's so inspirational to so many people. And that's why when I left your book, I was like, man, I thought I've been dreaming for 10 years. I'm dreaming bigger now by reading your book because <laughs> you continue to share those stories. And, and I think I just, I get asked the question a lot, Jeff, it's like, you know, how do you guys come up with your ideas? Where do those ideas come from? And, and you know, obviously Walt was an idea man. We've talked about that, but what are the lessons from him or that you've seen, you know, with everything in your life? How do you get people to embrace 
their imagination? How do you get them to go to that park bench and and think bigger and dream bigger? And and then you talk about later about expanding your expectations. How do you do that? Well, I think um, you have to understand, you know, the key key for Walt was, um, I I know everyone loves the, um, you know, the, the idea that, you know, Walt was a dreamer, Walt was an idea guy. Um, you know, I believe that we all have ideas. I believe we all have dreams. The difference is Walt took action. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that is the, the real difference maker. It's not just that Walt sat on the park bench and had an idea. He got up off of the park bench and took action on that idea. And he believed in himself over and over and over again. And, you know, for me, and and this is what I say to the students in my class, you know, even at age 53, despite Mickey Mouse, despite Snow White, despite all of the successes under his belt, at age 53, Walt didn't just get to speak the words Magic Kingdom and Disneyland magically appear out of an orange grove in Anaheim. He still had to face every adversity and every obstacle in the world to see the dream of Disneyland come true, to include overcoming the objections of his own wife and his own brother. And so if you have an idea, if you have a crazy thought, if you have a dream, you're going to have to face those same difficulties and those same challenges. And as you know, from part of my story, having read the book, you know, I had a dream of teaching this class for years and years and years I finally had the opportunity to do it. I give the first lecture. The students absolutely love it. And then the very next day, I get diagnosed with a brain tumor. And they wanted to operate immediately. And um, as a result of the severity of the surgery, I was going to be out of work anywhere from six to eight weeks minimum. And that was going to result in, you know, canceling the class. Well, I had already decided I was all in on teaching this class, $40 single suitcase, one-way ticket, no matter what. And so I I just told the neurosurgeon, no way, not doing it. And, you know, delayed it for two and a half months so I could teach my college course on the history of an amusement park. And everybody thought I was nuts. Everybody thought I was crazy. But the point to that wasn't so I could take kids to Disneyland and give them an easy A for riding roller coasters. The point was, if the main objective of this class was, you know, you are going to face obstacles if you want to see your dream come true. If that is the main lesson of the class, how could I walk away from my students at the first obstacle that I faced? I couldn't do it. Could not do it. And if you did it, you may not have ever started the class ever. The class, of course, may not have started. You know, you want to be able to make the impact and all the letters and emails and messages, but you took action. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, you know, we, we, we delayed the surgery. We taught the class. And, and um, you know, fortunately, the, you know, the class was a success. The surgery was a success. And um, that is what resulted in, you know, writing the book afterward. And, um, you know, everything took off from there. It's amazing. You know, I don't, this doesn't compare at all, but just for the listeners to know, you know, two years ago, we started talking about taking the show on the road, taking the bananas to a whole different city out of the, you know, not close to home, hundreds of miles away and doing it. And then COVID happened and we had a choice, you know, do we push this or do we, do we actually go do it? 
And we made the choice that we're going to do it. We're going to find a city that, that's ready, excited for us. And we went down to Mobile, Alabama, hundreds of miles away, just about a month ago, or just uh, when this release will be later, but in March. And I'll never forget, both nights sold out. Um, and at the end of the last night, we had a surprise fireworks show. I learned that from you, my friend. All right. I'm going to tell you, I learned that from you because, you know, Walt Disney, you know, he doesn't have to spend the extra money on the Christmas parades. He doesn't have to right. spend, you know, $350,000. I think he spent on the Christmas parade. You know, we yep. spent a percentage of that on an extra fireworks show. And we surprised the fans, had the Greatest Showman soundtrack playing. And there were mothers and kids, actually mothers crying in the crowd with their kids because the first time together during COVID, smiling, a part of that memory. I ran out in the stadium, the band's playing their music. People aren't leaving an hour after the game. And I, I had to actually take my phone out because I wanted to remember something. And at the end of the night, this was an hour after the game ended, the players, the staff, the characters, the fans, their arms were around each other and everyone was singing, stand by me. And, wow. it, and it was such a memory that I'll never forget. That never happens. That never inspires me to now take our show all over the world because of that one moment that day that we did in the middle of a pandemic safely and as safely as we could, you know, in a smaller degree. And I think that's what I've learned from you. I've learned from Walt. And it's like, if you want to really make a difference, as Walt said, you know, all of our dreams can come true if we have the courage to pursue them. That's yeah. It. And what I tell people when I'm speaking is we have the ideas, we have the dreams, what we lack is courage. Yes. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. All right. I, we're going to do some games. We've got into the seriousness. We've got into the good stuff. We're going to do a few games. The first game. All right. You'll be ready for this. The first game is truth and dare. Which one would you okay. like? Truth. Truth. All right. What is the best lesson that we can learn either from Walt's failures or one of your failures? Oh, no matter what, whether it's a bankruptcy, whether it is losing Oswald, the not so lucky rabbit, no matter what, you have to keep moving forward. Mm, good. And a great quote from Walt. We keep moving forward, opening new doors and doing new things because we're curious and curiosity keeps moving us down new paths. Yep. I love it. I love it. I love it. All right. Now the dare. Now this is going to be intense, Jeff. This is what we do at our games. If you've heard of All my right. shows, I know the listeners do it. We actually have a sing-off at the stadium. 2,000 fans in one grandstand versus 2,000 fans in another grandstand. When the song stops, we have to finish that song lyric. I'm going Disney okay. with you, and I'm going towards one of your actually chapter themes, okay? Okay. I know you'll have this. This is an easy one, but I'm going to get you ready. So when it stops, finish that song lyric. Here we go. Okay. Don't let them know. Well, now they know. Let it go. Let it go. Let it go. <laughs> yes. Nailed it. Okay. There is like a whole nother verse, but I don't even have that. But let it go. You nailed it. Okay. You have a whole chapter in Beyond Walt Disney about letting go, learning to let go. How yeah, does that learning fit? Learning to let it go. With this big dreams, these big imagination, how does let it go fit into that? Well, I mean, that was a hard chapter to write because, you know, the first book is mainly about Walt and his dream for Disneyland and what we can learn from Walt and what we can learn from Disneyland. And then, you know, the book did really, really, really well. And so I was asked to follow it up with Walt Disney World. And again, you know, Walt died, you know, six months before they broke ground in Florida. And so I had to write about Walt's passing. And so the learning to let it go chapter, I, I write about Walt's, you know, passing and, you know, how, you know, we had to let him go and how tough it was to move on without Walt and to some degree letting go of his original vision for what was supposed to be the focus in Florida. And that was the city of Epcot. Of course, they built Epcot 
but they built it as a theme park, not as, you know, the city of tomorrow, which was what Walt wanted it to be. And I think, um, you know, we have these ideas and we have these visions and we have expectations for how things are going to turn out, but they're not always going to turn out the way that we think they're going to be or the way that we want them to be. And you write about this in your own book, Jesse. You know, you have these ideas and you have this factory of ideas. You, you do a lot of promotions and a lot of them are great. <laughs> a lot of them fail. Them or not. <laughs> yes. And if you stop just because a few of them fail, um, you're dead, right? The ones that fail, you just have to let them go. Correct. One hundred percent. One hundred percent. You have to let those go, and then you have to let go some to be, hopefully have people that can carry the vision. You know, you have yeah. to let go. You can't be. You, you can't control everything. And I think Walt Correct. control the experience, but you can't control how the vision is carried necessarily. Yeah. And, and so I think for me in Disneyland, the example that comes to mind for me, which is almost comical when it comes to what you're doing with the bananas, one of the first failures at Disneyland was. Walt wanted to recreate what he tried to do as a child. And that was having a circus. Yes. And, you know, everybody came to Disneyland to see Disneyland. They didn't come to Disneyland to see the circus and the circus just flopped. I, I mean, it was a major failure and he was just heartbroken over it. And of course, here you are um, doing baseball but you're really creating a circus around it. And it's like a massive hit. I mean, what would be so stinking jealous of you, dude? <laughs> right? Well, I don't know about that, but I think, yeah, I wrote that down. After you wrote that, I wrote that whole thing. I was like, we can't try to do so many things that are outside of our route. People are coming to see the bananas baseball circus. They're not necessarily coming right. to bring in a whole other act that doesn't fit the Disney theme, the bananas theme. And I think that circus didn't fit the theme. And that goes into right. you know, building a berm that you talk about. You know, you have to actually really build in that world that you want. And you bring other things in that. It sounds like it just is distractions that take away from what you're trying to accomplish. Well, yeah, and that's a good point because the circus was actually outside the berm. So that's uh -huh. a really good point. I didn't, yeah. know I didn't even know that. Yeah. I want to go with another game here. This is going to be a Walt Disney showdown, Jeff. This will be the first ever Walt Disney showdown I think you've done. So this is going to be okay. a... All right, I'm a, we're going to name a business or industry. I'll name one to you. You can throw one back at me and think of Walt is now running it. What is something he, he would do? Like from, you know, using some of your lessons, which I know you have so many e-ticket experiences and the berm and having a next and all that. So I want to start with what would you do if Walt was running a car dealership? What would he do to make it experience Walt Disney-like? Ooh, Walt, we're running a car dealership. What would he do? Or just using one of your lessons, for instance, and saying, all right, whether it's the main street or the tunnel or how would, you know, think about that and put it in context. Yeah. Wow. That's a great question. I can give you another one as well. If you want to, want to go to the next one. Go to the next one. Shopping mall. Because <laughs> those are now going extinct. So if Walt's They really running, are going extinct. If Walt's running a shopping mall, and I guess you could look at what Disney Springs is doing, but you know, that if he's running a shopping mall, what would that look like? Well, I mean, going back to the car dealership, <laughs> it's amazing to me that they don't make them more thematic. So, yeah, yeah, more thematic, more. I mean, why aren't there more snacks? More <laughs> free snacks. I mean, not that he gives away a lot of things that are free, but you know, if I'm in there buying a thirty, forty thousand dollar car, give me some free snacks. Right? <laughs> well, no, I mean that's that's a good point. I mean, it's all those plusing that would Walt would do. Yeah, but exactly. But, but the storytelling. 
You know, if you're going into a car dealership, there's a story of the first car that was made of that. You know, why is there storytelling when you walk in and see the pictures, almost like a museum-like, that you're walking in that first impression? I mean, I, I just came to me when I was thinking about you and storytelling that you open up with, you know, everything, that opening shot, those first impressions, you're telling a story. You walk into a car dealership, they're all the same. They feel all the same. Yeah, that's true. And so the storytelling is an element. Do you want to throw in an industry at me and I'll try to think on my toes? Sure. Higher education. <laughs> I'll take it on you. Higher education. Well, you said this, you had a whole chapter on becoming an edutainer. And, you know, I think there's a whole value to, you know, right now we are in a world where people are getting entertained so fast. We're in a TikTok world. And I know this is a, we've become very in TikTok right now. People want the bite size entertainment. Yeah. Yep. Education. It's still, what's the average class? An hour and 20, an hour, 90 minutes. It's a long form where you sit and go through it. And I understand the value of deep work. We know the power of keynotes. We both give them. But how do you entertain in bite-sized moments? And you can get this and share it. So I think the professors, the people that are teaching in a TikTok world with quick bite-sized moments are going to win. Now, the whole education, you look at college campus, that needs to be an entire experience. People aren't buying necessarily education. They're buying the four years of experience. So you got- Correct. You got like High Point University, who I've got to know in Edo Quibane. They've made it into a resort for kids. All right. That's winning in that sense. So it's what are you looking at? Education, change the way it's taught. You know, if you're looking at the whole experience, treat it like a a Disney World. What is all that add to it? That's what I would think from a Disney standpoint. Yeah. Uh, There's a book out there What If Disney Ran Your Hospital? Ooh. I would love to see What If Disney Ran Your University? Oh, that's interesting. Well, I, I think it's such a good mindset to think. That's why I want to go with the showdown, Jeff. I think it's like, all right, well, where would Disney, what would the vision be? You know, it starts with what are the frustration points? Same thing. Amusement parks, dirty. You know, it's, it's not a great experience. You got, and so you go there and, 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 and then you design based on the details to fit that. And you use right. it in making world. And you mentioned, I, I love how you said with the music, you're thinking like a, a, a movie, the transitions, the sounds, how they all go. Like, that's so smart. What if we all think about everything we do as a movie? That's where Disney's background was. He got 20, 30 years, started with sketches into that. It's like, I don't think we talk about that enough. Yeah. Yep. So it's all right. All right. We're going to finish here with a few. All right. So last couple here. I'm so fascinated. I love this. Um, All right. You've been grilling me. So I'm going to let you grill me for one second. Flip the script. You can ask one question. Uh, So one question. Um, Best keynote experience you've ever had. Ooh. Yes. This is hard. Hopefully the people that I spoke to are listening and don't take it the wrong way. It was definitely a Trek world for the Trek bicycle company. So big stage. And I think there was a lot of, as I learned later, skepticism of this crazy guy in a yellow tuxedo speaking to a multi-billion dollar brand. And after I spoke, the CEO or the president came on stage and he asked a few questions. And I asked him, can you tell me one you wouldn't believe moment that's happened to this company? You guys have done amazing things. And he goes, when this crazy son of a comes on stage and completely wowed and is going to change our organization forever, that was a moment I'll never forget. And when he said that to me, I walked off stage, I hugged the guy that brought me in and it was a special moment. And now I've been with them five or six times since. So like anything, a moment that stands out for, for anybody is a moment that the expectations, you know, you go against what people are expecting. You defy the odds a little bit. You go against it. Like no one thought we could go to a different city and put on a show and sell out the ballpark. All right. Want to finish here? Questions. You pose so many great questions in your book. If you want to get better answers, you got to ask better questions. You're a professor, you're a teacher, you're an educator, you're a speaker, you're an author. What are some of the best questions you're asking? Ooh, what would Walt do with COVID? <laughs> That's a very timely question. Yes. What would Walt do with COVID? Why, do, why does that interest you? 
Because I think people are really struggling with, you know, the current situation and it's sort of relevant to, and I get asked all the time, you know, or not really asked people, to, you know, what would roll over in his grave if they saw what Disney was doing with this or you know, what Disney was doing with that. And, you know, I've been very fortunate. I've had an opportunity to do a number of events with various Disney legends, you know, Bob Gurr, who designed the Matterhorn and the submarines and various vehicles. And, you know, Tom Maybe, who, you know, Walt hired to be the original Tom Sawyer on Tom Sawyer Island. And, you know, what I've heard those folks say is they never knew what Walt Disney was going to do on any given day. And, you know, when I hear them say that, then, you know, I have the opportunity to say, you know, the folks who worked with Walt didn't know what Walt was going to do next. So I'm really hard pressed 50 years later to say, you know, I never met Walt. So I have no idea what Walt would do today. And, you know, to think that I have a clue what Walt would do with Disney now is sort of arrogant on my part. And yeah. so I have no idea. And, you know, how he would handle COVID. I do know that he would put the guests first. And that he would put, you know, our safety and well-being first, because that was always very, very, very important to him. The other thing that I know is, given how much opposition there was to him getting into the amusement or theme park business, and, you know, Roy had called the banks and said, you know, if Walt comes down there to talk to you about that, quote unquote, damn amusement park, <laughs> you know, I want to know about it. And at one point, you know, the studio and the stockholders threatened to sue him over it. They were that convinced that it was going to run them off the financial cliff. The fact that the park is still operating and is so successful, and today the sun never sets on a Disney park anywhere in the world, he would just be thrilled to no end that he was right mm. and that it is so stinking successful. You know, is it being run exactly the way he would run it? Of course not. But he would be thrilled that so many people get to enjoy each and every day what he originally envisioned and what he originally dreamed of. I love it. Do you or Nikki have one moment where you guys were touched? You mentioned he would still put guests first. Is there one, we say fans first moments. Is there one moment that happened to you at Disneyland or Disney World or anywhere you've been in Disney that you will never forget? Yeah, last January, we um, I, I was speaking at the Disneyland Hotel to um, a, a really, really, really large group, and they happened to have bought out the Napa Rose restaurant the night before, which is a five-star restaurant in Orange County at the Grand Californian, um, you know, at, at the Disney Resort. And um, that remains the best meal we have ever had, and it's where we had eaten um, 10 years earlier on our honeymoon. Mm. And, you know, the idea that we would go back there and be treated by an event that was paying me to speak and had bought the restaurant out for a private, you know, the idea that, you know, that's where we would be 10 years later. Um, it, it was just crazy. It yeah. just, you know, we just had no idea, you know, that, you know, our life and our vision could take us that far you know, some, some 10 years later. 
You know, we always say every game is someone's first game. And even though that was a time coming back for you, it was a time that you'll never forget. And so that place, how the servers treated you, the food, everything was an experience that came into one. That was awesome. You know, it's an open kitchen and, you know, all of the chefs are there and you just Mm -hmm. tell them what you want and they, you know, carve it up and serve it up. And it's just Disney at its finest. Quite the experience. You finish your books a lot. Talk about legacy. What do you think the best lesson there is on leaving a legacy? Something from Walt or something that you've learned that you want to leave? people with. You know, I talk about, you know, it being, you know, success lessons for everyone and what have you. And, you know, you, um, you talk about this. It's, it's not success for the sake of success. It's really about significance. And, um, you know, I get, you know, handwritten notes, like what you graciously sent me and, you know, emails from, you know, readers, you know, every month from, uh, around the country and literally around the world. And it's the idea that, you know, you could do something that is going to have an impact. And, you know, I think at the end of the day, whether you're a business owner, whether you're a creative, whatever it is that you want to do, that idea, that park bench moment, you talk about it being that mirror moment, right? That idea that your effort is going to have some sort of impact or impression that is going to have some sort of significance on somebody else. That's the legacy, mm. you know, not about success for the sake of success. It's not about money for the sake of money. It's the idea that you're going to move the needle in somebody else's life and sort of pay it forward, if you will. Mm. You know, I think about legacy as being about leaving something behind. I want to leave something forward. <laughs> Brilliant, my man. I never heard that before. That's so well said. And I'll tell you, and you have, and as I say with the letter before, the impact that your books have made on me and our team, uh, I haven't shared much of it, but we're building our new, what we're calling banana land. And I love it. these experiences and geared on the Savannah bananas and how we make baseball fun and everything, trying to put our mind into what way Walt would think and the lessons that you shared. And I know, and just like, you know, you got to have confidence and courage to do it. I know in five, 10, 15, 20 years, it's going to be creating memories for millions of people. And Amazing. You, you laid the foundation for that. And I'm going to encourage all the listeners. They know if I recommend a book, it's the real deal. And the wisdom of Walt and beyond the wisdom of Walt, um, really check it out. Learn from Jeff. Obviously, he's making an impact. And Jeff, just want to thank you again for everything. Well, thank you, Jesse. Thank you for listening to Business Done Differently, where we believe that challenging the status quo, creating fans first, and changing the game is the best way to grow your business. For more information about the guest and topics covered in this episode, visit findyouryellowtux.com or shoot me a note at jesse at findyouryellowtux.com. Until next time, stop standing still, start standing out.